You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Jordan. For those of you who don't know me, director of youth here at the shore. Here is our headline for this morning. This is where we're going. The right desire for the future leads to right ambitions in the present. And so this morning, we're going to talk a lot about the future, specifically about the future that we have after we die. And and I'll be honest, early this week, knowing this topic, knowing this text I was going to be in and just thinking about it, it made for a pretty somber start to the week, pretty numbing, and a lot of times pretty sad, which seems natural. And here's the thing. I can't predict the future, but I do know that my day is coming. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know that compared to when I pulled into the parking lot this morning, I'm closer to it now. I have one less breath, and so does everyone in here. And so we can avoid the conversation, we can pretend it's not real, we can insulate our lives and try to eat so well and sleep so much, But no matter what happens, this day is coming. Our days are numbered. Moses even said, teach us to number our days, O Lord, for they're like the grass, here today, gone tomorrow. And the reality of death is that all of us have experienced it at some level. Like maybe you've lost a loved one, you've lost a friend, some of you maybe have lost a spouse or a child, And you know the pain of that. You know the wounds. The scriptures call death the last great enemy, and a lot of you have felt that. We've all lost friends. We've lost people, and we'll lose more. One day, my family will lose me. And so as I've been thinking about this text and this idea all week, instead of letting that build up anxiety or fear in me, which only seems natural, I realize that I don't want my own ideals, which are guesses at best, to dictate how I think about death. But I want the creator of the universe, the creator of all things, to tell me through the scriptures. What does God say through the scriptures about death, about dying, about the future, about the hope and glory that is to come? What awaits me? What awaits those who believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? I don't want the world to dictate how I think about dying. I want the scriptures and God himself to inform me. And so honestly, I'm so thankful for the text we're in today that I've been sitting in all week because what started off as a sombering, numbing, sad experience thinking about death has honestly flipped to the completely other side and turned into the most life giving, meaningful, purpose-filled hope. And so I'm incredibly thankful for the truth about what's to come, what's awaiting us. And my hope is that by the end of this morning, you'll feel the same way. And so if you're just joining us for the first time, we're so glad you're here. We're in the middle of a book, uh, a series on 2 Corinthians. It's actually a letter. And it was written by a guy named the Apostle Paul. And he writes this letter with a common theme throughout, that the Spirit of God leads us through our sufferings. 
It's this connection between the sufferings we endure, the struggles we endure, and the spirit following alongside us and comforting us amidst them. And as we've seen, the Apostle Paul, he lives a life that is just marked by brutal suffering and struggle. And his opponents would argue that he cannot be a true follower of Jesus because look how much he suffered. They would argue that a spirit-filled man wouldn't struggle like that. But Paul writes and says just to the contrary. He says, the fact that I suffer and struggle only further cements my faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And we've learned that God, in his gracious mercy, gives us suffering, gives us struggles, so that we might press into him more and know him more. And so now we get into chapter 5, where we have this new covenant that Paul's talking about, this new promise, this future hope in death, and it has given Paul a new motivation for life. So what's his new motivation? Let's pick it up. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1. He says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So what is Paul's motivation for life then? It's answered in this theme, in this overarching theme that runs through this text. It's that a right desire for the future a right understanding of the future, a correct view of what is coming and what is to come in death leads to the right ambitions in the now. And so Paul says, the way that I view what is coming in death will lead me to live a certain way right now in life. And he says, right out of the gate, he talks about this confidence. Verse 1, he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. See what he's doing. He's comparing and contrasting two very different things. He says, For we know that if this tent, this tent, he's referring to our bodies, my body, your body, his body. He calls it a tent because Paul, who actually is a tent maker, is using imagery that is familiar to him and I imagine familiar to you. You all know what a tent is. Many of you have spent nights in tents. What is a tent? Well, it's, it's flimsy. It's not sturdy. It's not built to last. 
You pop it up, you tear it down, you move on. It's not eternal, it's temporary, it's not home. And so he says, your body is like a tent. It's just like a tent. It's not built to last. And surely, many of you know this. I mean, for some of you, maybe it took you 15, 20 minutes just to get out of bed because of all of your aches and pains, only to hobble to the medicine cabinet to take some painkillers. Maybe you can't run like you used to run. Maybe when you get up off the couch to go to the fridge, you need to stop, get a few breaths before you go back to the couch. You know, maybe you can't hear like you used to hear. You can't speak like you used to speak. You call him by her name and her by his name. You just get confused. You forget things. Your leg hurts, your back hurts, your knees hurt, and you're only 30 years old, and you're just struggling, right? You know that your body is like a tent. It's not built to last. It's not going to last. That's why Paul says it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be torn down. But then he contrasts this, and here's where he gets his confidence from. And I don't know about you, but if you know your Old Testament, I get major tabernacle versus temple vibes here. But here's his confidence, second part of verse 1. He says, but we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So everything that the tent is, is the exact opposite of this building that's to come. So if the tent is flimsy and sturdy and temporary, this house is a building that is rock solid. And the builder and the architect is God himself. It is not made by human hands. It is not flawed. It's perfect and it's eternal. And so when the tent gets taken down, or Paul uses the word destroyed, he says, I know that I have a building in the heavens that God himself has made for me. And he's referring to the resurrected body. Paul's referring to the body that he and all who believe in Jesus will receive on the day that Jesus returns and establishes new heaven and new earth when there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more struggle, but it will all be replaced with a body that is unbreakable and you will have everlasting joy and communion with Jesus. That's Paul's confidence. That's his confidence that leads him to living a certain way now because he knows what's coming. And that's what leads him to be longing and groaning for that to happen. Not in some kind of suicidal way, but in a way that he's looking forward to what's to come. Look at verse 2. He says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I love this. He says, I'm groaning. I'm longing for this. Now, I've been very fortunate, especially with my long hockey career, to never really have any serious injuries but I can tell you the most painful experience I had was when I took a a high stick in the face and it basically knocked out this entire bottom row of teeth. And I remember that moment so clearly. Uh, I remember just like when it happened, feeling like I needed to spit. 
And when I spat, like a hundred little tiny pieces of teeth just went all over the ice. And that wasn't the painful part. The painful part was that all of the nerves in my bottom gums were completely exposed. So even the slightest bit of pressure, even like going was like the most uncomfortable, unbearable pain. And I was just groaning for it to be fixed. And I was like, this is not the way my body's supposed to be. Why am I playing junior hockey in this little small town that the dentist is closed on the weekends? I can't deal with this for two days. And it was the most uncomfortable thing. And I was just groaning for it to be fixed. And so Paul's showing us here that we groan for new bodies. What does he mean by that? It doesn't just mean that we're in pain in this life, though many of us absolutely are, but what he means here is that our inward spirits know something's not right. It's not right for our bodies to be getting older and weaker and dying, and so inwardly we're groaning for what we know to be right. And this is familiar language to Paul, this idea of groaning. In Romans chapter eight, he says this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And just a small aside here, interestingly, notice that it's not just you and I who groan, but we see creation is groaning as well. Think about that. So every mountain, Every tree, the ocean, every animal, your dog are groaning inwardly because they know that things aren't how they're meant to be and they're awaiting a day when Jesus will return and fix all things. But until then, creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. And it makes me think, like I just have to wonder, when you think about natural disasters, you know, you think about like, like hurricanes, like earthquakes, like tsunamis. Like what is that? Is that the earth, is that creation groaning in frustration, in pain, longing for Jesus to return and fix all this? Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we ourselves, those who believe in Jesus, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, whom God has taken up residence in, we groan inwardly because we know a day is coming when we will have a new, imperishable, unbreakable body. And so Paul's saying, I long for this. I groan for this. I am so, so burdened. These present sufferings and struggles, they're suffocating me. They're destroying me. And this is a guy who has been shipwrecked multiple times, who has been beaten almost to death, who has been stoned, who has been thrown in jail, and he has all of these things that are pressing on him, and likewise in your life, you have things pressing in all around you, whether it be depression or anxiety, financial troubles, marital issues, whatever it might be, Paul's saying that those are to be gracious reminders that this is not home, and they should give you a longing for the day that you will be further clothed in a new resurrected body. 
He even says this, we saw this last week, chapter 4, 17. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And Paul has confidence in this. That's changing the way he lives now. Look at verse 5. It says, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Let let me explain here. Um, In Ephesians 1, he uses similar language here where he talks about the spirit was given to those who believe essentially as a deposit for our redemption, right? So when you believe and trust in Jesus, Jesus then comes and indwells in you by means of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit marks you seals you and secures you as his adopted son or daughter that cannot be taken away from you. The spirit is his guarantee so that you can know with confidence that he's coming for you. And what he has for you is a new body, a new life in a place that Paul calls home. You can know that with assurance. And so Paul is confident This is his right desire for the future, his right understanding of the future, and that's going to lead him and lead us now into having the right ambitions in the present. So verse 6, in spite of everything we know, in spite of the great future before us, here's what he says. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. So why are we of good courage? Well, because we know something. We know the truth about our end. And when we can tackle the ultimate fear of death and stop seeing it as an enemy and start seeing it as a reward, I'm telling you, nothing will stop you from living for Jesus Christ and nothing will give you more joy. But what makes cowards of us all, and I'm included, is that we don't want to die. And the root of that is we either have a misunderstanding or a diminished, weak view of what happens to us when we die. We just don't get it. The apostles got it, didn't they? Like, think about it. They knew that they were probably going to die if they shared the gospel. But the confidence in knowing where they were going after they died is what gave them courage to be missionaries. And despite the high probability of death, they proceeded, and that's why we have the gospel today. So so praise God for their courage and confidence. Likewise, Paul himself will shortly say, that he would actually prefer to be at home with the Lord than be here because he knows the totality of what that includes. And because of that, you'll notice that his life is not in the very least risk averse, but it's actually the opposite. Because he knows the truth, he's going to take even more risks and be even more courageous. He's thought this all through. He's contemplated it all. And so... Our courage comes from this knowledge of knowing where we're going. But it also comes by faith. Look at verse 7. He says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. 
Paul referred to this idea last week when he said, we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. And so faith then is a discipline of setting your minds on things you cannot see and then walking towards those things, desiring those things, seeking those things. That's what faith does. It sets our minds on things you cannot see. And so we walk by faith knowing what is at the end of this life. We can't see it, but we know what's at the end of this life and what is at the end of this life will give us courage while we're here on earth. He goes on, verse 8. He says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, ready for the right ambition in the present, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please him. This is how Paul lives his life. You'll see in Philippians, famously, he'll say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whether I'm at home with the Lord or I'm here in the tent, wherever I am, I make it my aim to know him and to please him. That's what my life is about. And, and I love the book of Philippians because Paul will ask a very different kind of question about life than you and I tend to ask. Here's what I mean. You and I will tend to ask, is this action, is this thing, is this relationship, is this way of life, is it right or is it wrong? But Paul's not going to ask that. Paul's going to say, no, 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 what I care about, is this action, is this thing, is this way of life, is this going to help me know Jesus more and please him more, or is it going to rob me? from knowing him and pleasing him. Because even if this thing is a morally good thing, a morally right thing, but it's gonna rob me even in the slightest from knowing Jesus and pleasing him, then I'm out. But if something is gonna help me know him more and please him more, then Paul says I'm chasing that thing like it's gold. Such a great mindset. And so for us, this confidence of what is to come will lead us to live courageous lives here and now. Not a life where we try to insulate ourselves and comfort ourselves and protect ourselves from things that might come against us. Paul says, no, no, no. I walk squarely into those things. I face the reality that my body's breaking down, that I'm aging, that I'm wrinkling, that everywhere I go, people are persecuting me. And despite that, I face it head on and it reminds me of what is to come in the future and it gives me courage to live boldly for the Lord because that's what's pleasing to him. And then he goes on in verse 10 to what appears to be on the surface maybe the most terrifying verse in the Bible. But I'm going to contend with you, Christians in here, that it's actually the opposite. Verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So here's the deal. Paul uses the image of what in his day is called a bema seat, which is basically like 
a tribunal or a council, essentially a courtroom that renders judgment, that people have to go and stand and give an account for everything they've done. Paul has stood in these multiple times in Corinth, in Rome. He was tried and persecuted. And so Paul, again, using imagery, he understands. And this time, it's the image of a judge, which I think we can all understand. And he says that we must all stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for everything in our lives. Notice he says, we all. Who does that include? All of us. Me, you, everyone. And I realize that maybe some in here or watching were raised under a theology of like a heavy-handed, mean-spirited, angry, ruthless, vindictive, grumpy old God out to get you, just trying to crush you. And I'm sorry if you have that distorted or perverted view of who God was, but let me say to swing the pendulum all the way to the other side and present to you a flimsy, weak God who's just like, whatever, it's all good, come on in, is to do the same discipline service to you. And so the balanced view of God is the one where he is both the lion and the lamb, the gentle and the meek, the Savior who says, I come in grace and truth and offer you an opportunity for salvation and reconciliation to the Father, but know this, I am coming back to rule with an iron scepter and you will all be put before my judgment because I'm a righteous, just judge. And so Paul says, I'm not hiding from this truth. I'm not pretending that it's not coming. In fact, I long for this day it's, it's because of this day that I live differently. Because I know I'll give an account one day. I know I will stand before the king and give an account for every careless word, every selfish deed, every wicked thought, every spiritless argument, Every action, every non-action, every event, every moment in my life, I will give an account before the Lord. And look, if that doesn't make me press into the mercy and grace offered in Jesus Christ, then I'm not sure what else will. I can pretend that this isn't going to happen. I can wish it away, but judgment's coming. You can skip over verse 10, but it's not going anywhere. And for Paul, he says, I don't avoid this. I run headlong into it, and I make it my aim to please him while I'm here on the earth. I read a great line from a commentator this week. He said, the judgment seat of God is the privilege of Christians. The judgment seat of God is the privilege of Christians. It's not to be feared in an unhealthy way. It's not to well up anxiety in us, but it's the privilege of the believer to stand before the one who has redeemed and set free and renewed 
and purchased and adopted and reconciled and justified and say to him, you alone are my king. My life I live because of you. Because of you alone am I justified. It is by your blood that I am set free. It's the opportunity for me to look upon the face of the lamb for the very first time. It's the privilege of the believer to stand there knowing with assurance that you are covered by Jesus' blood and as he renders judgment over your life, he says, innocent. It's a privilege for the believer. It's a place where you can bow before the Lord and plead the blood of Christ and know that you are covered. And so if I could encourage you from this passage, it would be to consider the coming judgment. Don't pretend that it's not going to happen. Don't pretend that what you do here doesn't matter because grace will just pay for it later. God is expecting something from your life, not in a way to earn your salvation, but know that it's not just that you were transformed when you were saved and you were saved from sin and death. You're not just saved from that, but you're actually then saved to something. He has transformed you so that you might be an ambassador of his moving forward. So what you do here matters. Your life matters. Your aim is to please him. And that should well up some divine identity and purpose in you. And so consider the coming judgment. Think about it. Don't ignore it. It motivated Paul's very life. The great Jonathan Edwards has a whole book of resolutions, and resolution number nine says this. He says, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. And so for Edwards, he says, as I think on these things, as I, as I think on my own death, how is it going to affect me? How is it going to affect others? I want to think about it because it's going to change the way that I live today. It's going to change the way I spend tomorrow. And I want to think on these things so that I might be prepared and that I might be one who is preparing and leading others as well to this future glory. Because the day's coming. There's nothing stopping that. And so for Edwards and for the Apostle Paul, instead of ignoring and avoiding this issue and pretending like it's not going to happen, they have the right understanding and desire of the future and they can confidently say, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? It has been swallowed up. And they know that the last great enemy, death, because of the resurrection of Jesus, has now become a servant of every believer because we have a promise that's so great. Amen. And that's amazing. Like, let me think on that. Let that change me. Let that affect me. Let me feel the weight of that. To avoid it is to float on a superficial, weak, shallow, joyless, surface life that doesn't truly understand the depths of your salvation. And so let me think about my death and dying, not, not in like a morbid or masochistic way, but, but in a healthy way that is preparing me 
so that I may be one who is pleasing God and preparing others as well. And so when I'm engaging people about God, when I'm talking to people about God, whoever it is, I want to display, of course, a mindset rooted in the gospel. But more than that, a mindset rooted in knowing with confidence where I'm going after this life as an explanation for why I live the way I live here. Where it's not all about me. Where I don't care so much what you think about me. Where it's not all about money and status. Where my gifts are given to me to serve you. Where my free time is available to help you so that I might please him and reflect the image of Christ to everyone. We will all appear before this judgment seat. Are you ready for that? I'll tell you what, let's, let's pray. Let's bow our heads and I'll pray in just a moment. Come on up, Jill. I think it'd be good posture for us I'm, as I just continue and close here to just focus and, and think about these things. But we're all going to appear before this judgment seat. Paul himself sat in earthly judgment seats and he says that there's n- they're nothing compared to this tribunal that every one of us will one day face. Where every secret of your heart, every deed ever done, every word ever spoken comes into judgment by the living God. Make no mistake about it, everything will be judged. But here's the good news of the gospel. All of those things come out and come under judgment. But for those who believe in Jesus, the payment is already made. The judgment has already been executed. Jesus is declared guilty in your place on the cross, not because he ever sinned, but because he loved you so much that he gladly endured and bared your sin. So you face the judgment and you're declared innocent. So maybe you're like, wait, wait, so you mean, God, you mean that you're not going to condemn all of these terrible things that I said and did? I was expecting to be condemned for this huge long list of stuff that I've done and God will say, no, that whole list already fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will it be like? I just try to imagine what it will be like for us who believe in Jesus, who come before the Lord with this long list of things that we know we've done wrong. And we have so many things that we've said or done that make us guilty. But in that moment, God will not only declare us innocent of those things, but he will actually reward us with eternal joy in life. Doesn't that seem unfair? That's called grace. On the day of judgment, if you believe in Jesus, you will experience grace. And this should cause us 
to want to think upon and dwell upon this day of judgment. Because when we think about the judgment to come, we can't help but think about the amazing, beautiful substitute of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian in here, you can believe in Jesus today and this experience will be the same as as the rest of us where you will experience God's grace for everything you've ever done. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ was made to be sin for us. So when we think about the coming judgment, we can't help but think about our salvation. And when we think about our salvation, we can't help but be grateful. When we think about our salvation, we can't help but think upon all of the benefits that are coming for us when we experience the fullness of our redemption when we leave this body and go into his presence when we go home. That's what changes everything in this life, is having the right answer and meaning for your death, and embracing it. It's a right desire for the future, which leads to the right ambition in the present. And so God, I just thank you for my brothers and sisters in here this morning, and everyone watching, and oh, I just thank you for your grace. It doesn't seem fair. We don't deserve it at all. Yet not only do you declare us innocent, but you reward us with an eternal life with you. Would you help us just dwell upon that and may that change the way we live today. May that change the way we treat others today. May that give us courage and boldness. And maybe think upon the future often. Especially when we're enduring suffering especially when we're in the midst of pain and struggle. Help us just know that there is a coming future that is so much better than this, that is going to make it all so worth it. But until then, we need your help so bad, so help us fix our eyes upon you. And I just pray for anyone in here this morning or watching who doesn't know you, who wants this, may they just know that your grace is offered to all. And I just pray for boldness and courage for them to maybe ask for prayer and to perhaps lean on you and give their life to you for the very first time. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.